0: Hello, Trash Future listeners. Uh, please enjoy this unlocked Britnology featuring Joe Glenton on the topic of the British Army. Important note Joe's new book entitled Veteranhood. Rage and Hope in British Ex-Military Life is available from Repeater Books. I am linking to it in the show notes. It is now on sale. You can purchase it. You should purchase it. And if you like this episode, you are more or less obligated to purchase it. I will link to it in the show notes to this. Please enjoy this unlock. And also, bear in mind, just as an aside, we have some Johannes Vonk themed t-shirts. They are also on sale now. Pre-sale is going on until Wednesday, the 17th of November. So if you want those shirts make sure you click on that link in the show notes as well. Have a good one. Hello and
1: welcome to yet another edition of Britainology, Uh, the show where we analyze Britain, a normal island filled with normal
0: people doing normal things. I am your host, Mark Roberts. I'm joined as ever by my co-host, Nate Bethea. Hello. It's another strangely, unseasonably warm, lovely day here in London. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're getting summer at the end of summer instead of actual summer yeah and uh, keeping you guessing exactly it's like a sort of tarantino movie of seasons like <laughs> yeah, just exactly. mashed up well it's it's, it's three mm. months where weather like this is a yeah. possibility and nine months where it most certainly is not N- so- nate's feet are uncovered and on the table <laughs> uh <laughs> lots of
1: lascivious podcast <laughs> camera angles being used
0: yeah i've just i told milo to not be a square but i didn't say the word square i just drew it and mm. somehow it ticked little yeah. boxes on the screen yeah exactly yeah, everyone's saying the n-word um is <laughs> being gonna... <laughs> skillfully edited out of the, of the podcast but we are we are in fact joined by a subject matter expert for our topic today uh we are going to talk about the british army and we are joined by british army veteran leftist journalist writer thinker and mma enthusiast joe clinton joe how's it going <laughs>
2: good lads good to good to be in touch good to hear your voices yeah um and mma
1: enthusiast isn't a euphemism he just genuinely does mma we're yeah, not suggesting yeah. anything about his character
2: i do bjj actually which is which is probably even more culty and fucking weird and full of alt-right weirdos and vaxxers to be honest oh fuck so um blowjob judo yeah. the, the pajama clad version of mma <laughs> <laughs> the sleepy mma
0: I knew a guy from home who worked on the oil patch in like North Dakota for a while and then got super radicalized and was like for a while was a BJJ guy in Los Angeles and working uh, working, like private security. And one time he went on this rant about like, you know, all these people in America, they want to fucking have socialism. But I know people from Sweden, which is a socialist country, and they fucking hate it. They all want to (laughs) move to America. I'm like... Dude, you're, the only Swedish people you're meeting are guys who do Brazilian jiu-jitsu in Los Angeles. There might yeah. be some selection bias there, just possibly. <laughs>
2: yeah. And it is crank it's crank central. I love the sport, but it is absolutely full of fucking weirdos. I'm not going to lie.
0: Yeah, I can only it imagine. It's
2: on me every day. Every day.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you're hoping that it's going to be Anthony Bourdain, but it's mostly just Jair Bolsonaro.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And people talking about the pandemic agenda and all this <laughs> oh, shit, awesome. Just sitting around. <laughs> Like they don't even train; they just sit on the edge of the mat talking about about weird conspiracy shit. That's when often. it gets really
1: Brazilian. You yeah, know, I was gonna you, you're, you're you're a skeptic about the coronavirus. You've got a huge ass.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 and just and obviously the Brazilians are like white middle class Brazilian playboys who are like massive bolsonarists very often. So yeah, there's that. Another brilliant element of the sport. I I, I remember
0: seeing a thing during the Brazilian election where Bolsonaro enthusiasts around the world were going to like Mm. the consular voting booths or whatever at various embassies and voting by pushing the button with a gun and taking pictures of it. (laughs) It's just like, ah, (laughs) I love (laughs) Brazil. It's such a sane country. (laughs) Well, we're going to talk about a different mm. kind of sane country today. We're going to talk about yeah. Britain and Britain's armed forces, specifically the army. And to, to Milo's got a list yeah. of topics, but can we get, can we get the color sergeant drop here? I oh, fuck sake! <laughs> well, before before we actually, I'll tell my color sergeant story at a okay. certain point, All right, yeah. uh, because that one's fun. But as as sort of like a opening up thing, the thing that really surprised me was that in America, you can join the army with your parents' consent when you're seventeen. You mm. can't deploy to combat until you're 18. You, I don't think you can even be posted abroad until you're 18, but you can sign up when you're 17. And I was somewhat surprised to learn that in Britain, you can, in fact, enlist when you're 16. Mm. Uh, obviously, this country has a different set of rules with regard to like what when you enter adult trades. And a long time ago, that was pretty standard that you would enter a trade when you were 16. But mm. it's just weird to me now and i i think there's a similar rule that you also can't really be posted anywhere until you're and 18, so i was going to say joe before we start talking about the big overarching view i have to ask did you ever have to deal with fucking 16 year olds because anyone i know Absolutely. from the army in Absolutely. the u.s was like fucking 17 year olds in basically training the dumbest idiots you've ever met in your life like it's just a nightmare yeah. to deal As opposed with to 18 year olds who are smashing it
2: yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think it's weird because they start at sixteen, and but they, I think they can actually join up just before they're sixteen. So they get to basic training when they're sixteen with parental consent. But yeah, loads of guys uh, in uh, in basic training. There is a separate the child soldier. Britain has a child soldier factory in Harrogate, which is the (laughs) the poshest part of North Yorkshire. The Queen's resistance army there. Yeah. So there's two like streams, but some of them also end up just in basically adult basic training. Some are like the seven, the ones who had nudged in 17, I think, mm. or turned 17. Okay, But yeah, very, very regularly you get to the unit, you get, when I first got to my unit, I joined up a bit old. I was 22. So I was like mm. granddad, <laughs> granddad of the troops, kind of wizened old Yoda character. But, um, yeah, lo- there was loads of 16, 17 year olds, um, or at least 17 year olds in my first unit, um, who are just, who just like they strike that every uh, on every every outcome on every metric, the guys who join that young come out of it really badly. One of my mm. jobs is at Forces Watch, and like we have we look at the statistics, like everything: mental health, alcohol abuse, drug abuse, homelessness, child. You know, people who end up in prison on every metric, it's a really bad idea. But Britain, Britain continues to insist that it must have child soldiers. And yeah. It also means that every time, every time at the UN, someone's like North Korea or the Republic of Congo, because there's only a few countries around the world who do this. Every time they say North Korea, you must stop doing this. North Korea says, Ah, but Britain. <laughs> uh, so it gives an excuse to all kinds of people to just carry on recruiting children, mm-hmm. basically. And it's true they can't. I think in Northern Ireland there was too many seventeen-year-old squaddies dying, so they upped the age to eighteen, uh, which is tolerable. It's a tolerable age to die, at eighteen mm-hmm. apparently. Um, uh so yeah you're not missing uh, out on
1: much are you in britain no no no
2: Uh, weirdly a couple of uh, on a couple of occasions we did an foi and a couple of 17 year olds did actually accidentally get to deploy deploy to iraq and afghanistan they kind of crept under the radar but were quickly found out and sent home but it it also is no guarantee they won't be deployed because the british army is Just an impossibly clumsy and ridiculous organization which does things like that. It's a difficult third in-betweeners movie, that one. I just
0: just recall when I went to airborne school, I was a cadet. And I was 20 and I looked really young for my age. But there's a... there's a, a sort of a system in the Army, U.S. Army Airborne School, where you, the youngest member of the class, they look at all the mm. dates of birth of the members of the class, and the youngest member gets given like a ceremonial, sort of like the shiny version of the Airborne wings that you'd wear in a dress uniform. He's called the ring bearer, and he or the uh, the, <laughs> wing, the wing baby, the, 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 wing, <laughs> the wing bearer rather, and he uh, he has to keep them on him his, his person at all times. Mm. And when I went through, it was actually a kid that I was just like. Uh, our roster numbers were right next to each other. So we were always in formation next to each other. And like very nice Mm. kid was from like Arkansas was just like Mm. grew up like country as hell and was going to be, you know, being a soldier was about the only real option besides working at Walmart where he was from. But when I say this kid looked like a kid, I mean like not only was he not shaving, like he basically looked like he looked like a cyclist who shaved his legs. He was like, he looked like a child, like an absolute Mm, child. And he was, you know, 17 and like, Half. And by the time that he was done with training, he was going to go to the 82nd Airborne and he was going to a brigade that was going to deploy. And like he would eventually go to Iraq and be at like 18 and one month old or something like that. And yeah. I never knew what happened to him. But like that was the thing that really shocked me was like this kid was super motivated. But like what's th- my friends who joined that young or joined right out of high school like did not come back from Iraq normal. And I always think to myself, right. like, yeah, great, great idea. <laughs> Child soldiering, great idea. Mm. However, we're going to talk about. The overall institution of the British Army, and uh, Joe, as veteran and someone who also criticizes the military and, and do, works at Forces Watch, I feel like you have a mm-hmm. uh, a unique perspective on the institution itself and also Britain's relationship to it. So, yeah. Milo, I'm, I'm going to hand it to you, the the person who wrote the notes. Yeah, I mean, I I I I shrink notes away from where, uh,
1: making myself seem qualified here. I did. I I opened a Google Doc and I wrote some things down in it that occurred to me. Um, I thought a good place to start would be public perception because I think uh, people are very aware of the U.S. Army and how it's perceived and the Americans' relationship with their beloved troops or not or not so beloved, depending on, on the case. Because I think the way that British people conceptualize the army and, and interact with it is very different. Um, yeah, because I think that, uh, and Joe, feel free to uh, interrupt me or chip in with anything at any point here. Like, despite the kind of culture war efforts, like the army still doesn't really loom that large in the public imagination in Britain in the way that it does in America. America. Yeah,
2: yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. I think we we have a. Uh, I've described it in this book as a kind of manic depressive relationship with the army. Mm. We, in Britain, we actually traditionally love the navy. The uh. navy is the is the thing which we adore because seafaring nation and all this stuff. Mm. And we have this weird relationship with the army where we don't really like it except during periods of of war, maybe just before and just after. And so the army is, I don't think it's traditionally popular because it's very expensive and mm. it kind of hangs around. Like the Navy, you don't have to see it that much because mm. it's normally floating around somewhere else in the world. But the army um, is this kind of annoying, expensive thing. And it doesn't, in a weird reactionary way, having a standing army doesn't really chime with the kind of john bull english fantasia like the way we think about ourselves mm. i think standing armies traditionally in this country have been seen as a kind of a kind of european thing and a bit of an alien thing having loads of soldiers it's a bit effeminate um, having a standing army <laughs> yeah. what
1: do you need a standing yeah, it's, army it's for so, army, so there's loads it. of blokes yeah <laughs> trying to just meet more blokes.
2: i mean what are they doing yeah <laughs> what they're doing over there yeah so we have this weird relationship certainly in the last 15 years there's been this weird attempt to ba- basically because the wars were deeply unpopular there was an attempt and there are documents about this um, gordon brown fronted one called the recognition of our armed forces in report about and it basically uh, tried to make the our uh, the wars popular by conflating the wars with the army and it's that kind of American, very american, very american yeah. sort of, like disrespect the like criticizing mm. all your disrespecting the troops and so we tried to transplant the kind of um the kind of american model of soldier worship to britain mm. with varying degrees of success because it doesn't really work yeah yeah um, because we do have a different relationship and the the kind of stiff upper lip stoicism you know the the trenches and the Somme, mm. um which is how we kind of formulate our ideas about the army i think mm. is very different to the kind of shrieking at the first sight of camouflage in the airport lounge thing, which I suppose is, is <laughs> at least my perception of the American approach. And mm. there has been an attempt to kind of take this, which developed in the wake of Vietnam, obviously a lot of the, cause they assess different countries, ways of popularizing the military mm. in this, in this one report. And they looked at the French and they looked at the Canadians and they, you can see they're particularly taken by the American idea and they talk about Vietnam, they talk about the wake of Vietnam and they chose for various reasons, Um, the American model, obviously it's the biggest ally. Uh, And my sense is that this is the Gordon Brown government. This isn't the Tories and Mm. the Tories carried it on with great gusto. They tried to take this model and just transplant it onto Britain. And that's when you see the, the kind of real kind of poppy shagging, um, kind of a British version of, you know, support the troops Mm. really come to bear. Uh, but because it doesn't really fit, I think with the kind of our perception of ourselves, are kind of the way we formulate our our own relationship in our heads to the military, it doesn't really work that well. Uh, but nonetheless, they've pressed on with it. And so we see hints of mm. it, I think. But um, there, are, there are problems with trying to just copy yeah, and paste that was it. Sort of, I it.
1: mean, just from a kind of like a layman's perspective, having sort of like grown up in the UK very much in the era of the war on terror, sort of my, and then have it looking back on it now, mm. my perception of it is that the uh the the wars in iraq and afghanistan were much less popular in britain than they were in yeah. the us like while while french fries were yeah. busily being renamed in the us there was like yeah
0: i mean i was something that i would that i would throw out there is it's weird to me because my dad was in the army so i you know grew up around army bases and you know in sometimes mm. uh in certain parts where where i lived as a kid everyone's parents were in the military whereas in other places i was the only person whose parent was in the military Uh, and what I noticed was, you know, after Vietnam, um, there was definitely a kind of call it, uh, upper middle class, upper class sort of distancing from the military. I mean, I I don't think a lot of people were particularly Mm -hmm. sad when, whether it was the pretext of the Vietnam war, which caused Harvard to get rid of ROTC in the sixties or, uh, as an opposition to the the fact that Don't Ask, Don't Tell violated mm-hmm. universities' anti-discrimination policies by the, you know, by the time of the late 80s, early 90s, um, there was this absolute distancing of the sort of elite. So in Britain, my impression is that being an army officer is still a very like respected upper-class pursuit, whereas in the US, it's very much there is a sort of like liberal grasping at sort of like, oh, we have to be responsible stewards of this global hegemony, but it's not really that popular. In fact, very few people who go to elite schools wind up joining the military. Um, But the point Mm -hmm. I'm making here is, as a kid, I recall the weirdly sort of ambivalent relationship that the US had towards the military by and large, despite the fact that like, yeah, the military was still doing stuff abroad uh, versus... 9-11 911 obviously changed everything but there was yeah. a subtle change before 911 and I would say it started with a lot of the really almost overdone almost like messianic interpretations of the 50th anniversary mm. of the end of World War II and stuff okay. like Band of Brothers and yeah. Saving Private Ryan that's all pre-911 mm. and that was all formulated and so there was starting to be this kind of mythologizing about World War II is the good war and us as the good guys and the good army and blah 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 mm. and that was kind of like to some extent, I mean, the yellow ribbon thing started with the Iranian hostages in the '70s, uh, and mm. then it got kind of turned into a troop thing for the Gulf War. Right? Um, there were deployments, you know, the Gulf War, Panama, Grenada, um, Haiti, Bosnia, Kosovo, stuff like that. Mm. But nine eleven obviously changed all of it. But the big takeaways that I had was that America was kind of ambivalent towards the military, at least in my perception, until the end, of, like the late '90s, and then nine eleven. Mm. And then obviously, like, there's still a lot of elite discomfort about sort of the idea of your kids joining the military, for mm. example. Like, it's very much sort of a them, not us pursuit. And so, to me, at least, looking at this in Britain, like, the impression that I've gotten is that American journalists would probably not get on their Twitter and be like, oh, I saw, I saw some people, you know, rob, looting a fucking Aldi, send the army in and put them all down, which happens here. But at the mm. same time, <laughs> uh, there is so much pantomime so much like pageantry around respecting like public recognition of the troops in mm. america and that's even gotten worse in my lifetime i've watched obviously with 9-11 but even post 9-11 you didn't see like military flyovers at fucking football games or like salutes to the troops at like a regular season mm. hockey game like it's or bizarre. A high school graduation or high school graduation yeah. yeah you saw
1: that too yeah the funniest one was at the high school graduation. They got everyone who was intending to join the military to stand up and get a round of applause. So they were actually getting applauded for like the intention yeah, of, of getting, doing you're it.
0: Getting, you're getting respected as a future yeah. U.S. Army yeah, soldier. Yeah, you're just
1: respecting a future U.S.
0: Army <laughs> yeah. soldier. And, so, yeah. and then the one thing I would end it on, too, and, and feel free to react to any of this, Joe, is that I've also heard people tell me, people who grew up in Britain, say that people who are about my age, I'm almost 37, that when they were kids or young teenagers, Remembrance Sunday was absolutely sort of. It felt more like, a let us talk about the folly of war and not about you know, poppy shagging. And that, yeah. that yeah. has gotten worse and more ostentatious and weirder in mm. their lifetimes. And that, that, and that tracks with my That's experience be, as yeah. an American, like 9-11 notwithstanding. I mm. think we were starting to do that already yeah. before 9-11 happened
2: yeah it's um yeah remember because remembrance is so just uh, all consuming now it's sometimes hard to remember what it was like before, mm. but I'm pretty sure there was almost definitely the sentiments were never again, and I don't mean among mm-hmm. kind of left wing people yeah. which I suppose it was left ish and angry anti war mm. veterans coming back. I think that's where that comes from originally. It was just a general sense of probably indifference growing up, but that's definitely obviously changed. Yeah. Um, as part, I think as part of this, I mean, the centenary, the World War I centenary mm. provided a, re- a perfect opportunity to kind of advance that, the ideas that were coming out of the recognition of the Armed Forces mm. in Our Society report. And it was definitely jumped on by big charities like mm. Help for Heroes, um, the Murdoch Press, um, Tom Newton Dunn was a leading figure in popularising uh, mm. Help for Heroes, uh, and the military, of course. So it's definitely, it's definitely shifted um, over the last mm. 20 years or so. Um, but also there is that there is that thing where yeah I suppose part of, part of it is kind of World War II nostalgia which is really pronounced here and I think what what people are trying to infer or the people who are doing this stuff are trying to infer is that obviously out, most of our wars all of Britain's wars basically are profoundly immoral and always have been but the one moral war which you can make a case fight fascism yeah fair play I'm down yeah. whatever um, they 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 try and kind of they're trying to make out that the same people who kind of stormed the beaches at Anzio yeah. in Normandy are the people who are kicking indoors in Iraq and Afghanistan. And that, that's kind of what they're trying to They're trying to yes, convey these two it, wars. I'd like to see it. And these, these two profoundly different. Like one is mm. a massive conscript army. And the old core of the army, which is deeply reactionary, had a lot of trouble with loads of conscripts because people would come in and they didn't think, they weren't professional soldiers. For them, I think, uh, Alan Allport, who's a historian of demobilization, writes about this a lot. For the people doing it, this was like temporary. It was kind of cosplay mm. almost, but with live bullets. And they had no intention of kind of buying into the system of the military entirely. Uh, So these are two, the modern British army and the British Mm. army, world war two, which we try and conflate with my army, Mm. if you like completely different, completely different organizations. Some things have the same names. I mean, there are grenadier guards and a fucking RAF Mm. regiment and paratroopers now. And there were then, but beyond that, um, these are two entirely different organizations and and it's really important to kind of critique that.
1: And they're still the Brecon
2: Point. Still the Breck and Point. The Brecon Point's always there. it's It's, it's the, enduring, <laughs> the enduring gesture of the British Army. Yeah. Um, so there is, I think part of this thing is this weird, nostalgic mm. attempt to conflate the army I know with the, the Army of World War II. And these are just objectively completely different mm. different organisations on every level, except a couple of names of things, I guess. And the point. This
1: is quite interesting because it plays in something which I think you were alluding to earlier, Joe, and I think it was something that Nate was sort of touching on a bit as well, which is that, um, and I think it's worth bringing out that I think that in america the real the, de- the defining war in people's minds is world war Two, whereas to a certain extent in britain it's more world war one or certainly yeah. a lot of the traditions yeah. that we have around so, the yeah. army and around like remembrance sunday in particular are like extremely and very deliberately grounded in world war one and so it has slightly more that character of like it's much harder to sell world war one as a glorious victory against anything in particular um, but they do try there they go yeah. but they,
0: it also seems like with the advent of the fact that you're at the point now where there are no surviving veterans of World War 1 you, yes. it becomes... Apart more, from the boomers, of course. Yeah, of course, yeah, the boomers yeah, fought yeah. at the Somme yeah. and at Passchendaele. So the Somme and Passchendaele, yeah. yeah. They they I died four times in World <laughs> War <I. laughs> They That was they, just Jim Basildon. They, they straight, it does seem to me like, yeah, they invoke it, but they invoke it as sort of a cudgel, like mm. you know, how dare you complain about social and political conditions in this country? Did you know that it sucked in the trenches? It's like, yes, we do yeah, fucking yeah, yeah. know that, but I, I think uh, for America, it's... Your feet are barely even moist. <laughs> for for. America, at least it's uh it's interesting to see because for our our participation in world war one was pretty much under duress and you know they had to uh reinstate sedition the enforcement of sedition acts passed in the civil war and put people in prison for anti-war activity to sell world war Mm. one as a cause because it was deeply unpopular in america and we didn't enter the war until 1917 Mm. um Whereas obviously, in World War two we didn't want to get involved at all, and then Japan attacked Pearl Harbor and so all of a sudden, you know uh, mm. I still hold to my position that if if Germany hadn't honored its pact and hadn't declared war on America, that America wouldn't have wanted to fight the Nazis because just as the you know the call the sort of British liberal and conservative establishment were pretty cozy with the ideas of the Nazis, so were a lot of Americans, and mm. there was a whole lot of fucking race superiority shit directed towards the japanese that wasn't directed towards the germans but the germans declared war so we decided we were going to well we're going to fight the germans as well Mm. and i look at this stuff and I, i i i'm always taken aback by it because what i see here i think the thing that shocks me the most is there is this what's the right word here I don't feel as though any of this stuff ever seems to be related to the actual troops in the British Army today. Mm. I don't really mm. see them being invoked that much. There's a little, and there's some iconography and stuff, and things around help for heroes. But by and large, it seems like my vibe as an outsider, and I've only lived in this country three years now, is mm. that it feels as though so much of it is about kind of stimulating a feeling of like what world war ii means or world war one means or like the general sort of nostalgia for being relevant and it has almost nothing to do with actual guys in uniform whereas in america yeah. it's so much about like our troops who are being disrespected somehow who need to board the plane first and so on and so mm-hmm. forth who are standing in uniform who are in church in their battle dress for some reason like that mm-hmm. kind of stuff it's that to me is like the the the, the disconnect and I don't know, Joe, if that's if that's jive with your experience. I know you you talk to a lot of, of veterans, veteran organizers, and left wing veterans in America, and like I imagine some of yeah, that yeah. must come through in sort of the difference in cultures.
2: It does, yeah, yeah. I feel like I feel like you're you're a long way kind of down a down a road that we're just kind of starting on with the, the kind of transplantation. I think we we try and do that stuff, and in in that report, which I'd recommend any 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 of your listeners read, they actually kind of dig dig up some moral outrage examples. But they're really they're really stupid. Um, and they're they're talking about Vietnam and they're talking about the how how the soldiers were spat on by hippies and they're trying to come up with these you can see them trying to struggling to come up with these examples of moral panic about how the troops have been treated, but they're so like sublimely Anglo, like our version of um the troops being spat on by hippies in America is some fucking officer and they won't let him into Harrods because he's in uniform <laughs> it's like, hugo, poor hugo can't get his hamper for the officer's ball and it's like this this is it. and th- mm. things like that or like soldiers coming back into an airport and they have to get changed into civvies to walk through the lounge and stuff like Muhammad
1: that mohammed al-fayed still furious about suez not letting anyone in
2: <laughs> yeah the level of reaching for like moral panic things is mm. um is is unbelievable but yeah i, I feel like I feel like the stuff, they we've, we've borrowed so much stuff from that, mm. the, the way the Americans have done things. And I, I just feel like it doesn't, doesn't really work very well here, that kind of thing. But yeah. no, they do try. They are trying their best to make that stuff work. I also, I also think, because I think, I, I don't know if it's the same in the States, but a lot of military people and veterans actually don't really take any of that stuff that seriously. Mm-hmm. Some do, clearly. Yeah. And some will, mm. you know, the, the guy who did three months in, in, um, in Northern Ireland as a chef ken in armar in uh, who's who's obsessed with the self-loading rifle that like that guy will get angry about it the kind of guy mm. who's in a blazer and beret every opportunity will get angry about it that
1: guy can assemble and disassemble an omelet blindfolded
2: yeah like the, the audience for this shit isn't really military people it's mm. civilians like the worst jingoists mm. we have in this country all civilians and it's the guy who died in both world wars it's yeah, that yeah. guy <laughs> that, that's who this is aimed for mm. um a stone up and most military people i don't know aside from a i call them blazers just after their sartorial mm. choice because they're always out in blazers mm. um, apart from them most people are pretty fucking indifferent to a lot of this shit the target audience is like civvies, really yeah, a particular yeah. kind of civic i would say
1: yeah it's interesting how that's changing now because this sort of goes back a bit to some of the notes i made about Perception, Because I think uh, as, as reluctant as I am to ever to ever hand a good point to British liberals, I felt like during the period of like, quite intense opposition to the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, there was quite like a clever line being taken by those people of a kind of support the troops, not the war. And there was yeah. a lot of hay being made about troops dying, troops getting injured, troops being poorly equipped. Like you've sent them over there for this thing and you've not even given them the right equipment like this. So there was a yeah. lot of kind of uh, liberals like going out of their way. Way to be like, I'm against this war, but I support the people who are having to fight it because it's not their decision.
2: Yeah, as we there, they should have enough helicopters and body armor. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a very it's just peak liberalism, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's a, I remember actually at the start of it all, the Lib Dems took this brief, fleeting anti-war position. The Lib Dems are held up as having mm. been an anti-war party at the time, and I don't think it stands up to scrutiny because they were like, we will oppose the war until it starts. Was actually their position. It's Charles Kennedy who opposed the war, and then when it started, they were like, "Now we will support it with some mild criticism," because mm. um, they're, they're always held up as like, "Oh, we," and they do it themselves. They're like, "Oh, we opposed it as well," and actually, it's not true. Yeah, uh, which is, I suppose, is different to kind of Labour liberals and centrists who are like, you know, all in, all in from God, the off. God
1: bless Charles Kennedy, a man who, unlike the troops, was fully loaded.
2: It's also interesting to me because I I
0: don't know if, if Britain has the same culture where one political party is emphatically seen as the party of the troops and one is not. I just know that in America, you know... The overwhelming majority of people who are now or were recently now retired, you know conservative Republican luminaries, made yeah. it a point to uh, to dodge the draft as theatrically as possible. But then when yeah. Clinton became president, they 're like, "This fucking draft dodger has become president like all of a sudden b having, having been drafted, having served in Vietnam became a thing." But every time yeah, Democrats yeah. try to appropriate that, they fail. And the, the point I was going to make here is that I think about what you're just describing, threading that mm. needle of being like, I don't support the war, but I support the troops. And therefore, like, we shouldn't be sending them with fucked up stuff and under-equipped and unprepared and things along those lines. When Democrats yeah. tried to take that same approach mm. uh, you know, in the first Bush administration... The response that I remember seeing was more or less like, "How dare these fuckers publicly expose our vulnerabilities to the enemy!"
2: Like, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, <laughs> so I mean, yeah. like it was, <laughs> it was yeah.
0: unbelievable. Yeah. You're like, just in case Osama bin Laden is watching CNN right now and hearing John Kerry, and they're yeah. now they're discovering that apparently our Humvees have sandbags on the bottom of them. Like, yeah, it's, it was deranged, and so it felt, it, it felt like. Um, and I think nine eleven had a huge role in this. There just wasn't any way that you could oppose the war without being, you know, yeah. uh, more or less pilloried for uh, somehow being like, y- y- basically, you, you might as well take a complete fuck mm. the troops position because that is how you will be presented.
1: Yeah, but that wasn't yeah. really the case here, I don't yeah. think. And I think it's interesting what you bring up about the... Um that what is the party of the troops because it's always been politically a bit of a mess like because you would sort of assume that the Tories are more naturally the party of the troops as the Republicans are in the states yeah. but the Tories yeah. hate the army or the armed forces in general and they're obsessed with because to the, like it's so british that to them and to the british state in general the armed forces are just a public service and therefore yeah. inherently a socialist thing which needs to be <laughs> cut back anything that involves the government spending yeah, yeah. money like you would assume that any kind of like right kind of like fascist light or kind of nationalist government would be like, yeah, we're going to spend loads of money on the army. No, they're like, absolutely, there's going to be four troops. (laughs) like
0: um, Two of them are going to be children because they get a lower minimum wage. Uh, I was going to say, Joe, you served during the time when, as I understand it, that the the timeline that you were in was like not quite in the austerity era, but getting towards it. But like if you consider new labor as austerity under a different name, you were there. So like what, what was your... I guess I'm wondering, like, based on your experiences versus perception. For me, it's like for all the we, you know, the, we can't have we can't have roads that don't th- aren't full of potholes because we have to spend you know hundreds of billions of dollars on the wars. But then, like, when I was in Afghanistan, mm. our helmets got recalled because they the a bad lot of helmets made by a prison labor manufacturer had been issued to us, and so they That's had to recall well. them. Mm. You know, that kind of that, that to me was like hi- highlighting the contrast there. I was wondering, did you have any experiences of that sort of like? in your own time, just sort of the the difference between rhetoric and like what you were actually seeing in real life.
2: Yeah, I mean, our equipment was was pretty rubbish. I mean, the American equipment always looked fabulous to us. Like, we I was in Kandahar, had an easy tour, you know, lobster twice a week. We were like, what the fuck? And then they built a, a British scoff house, uh, and we had to go and eat British food. <laughs> we were like crying <laughs> about it. <laughs> uh, you're in the D, you guys call it the de yeah like, dining facility, D-factor. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so we were in there, um, but yeah, that, I mean, that, it was always very apparent that a lot of our um, equipment was still like Northern Ireland era, like snatches and Saxons and these big lumbering mm. civil order vehicles. And we deployed with with snatchers um and they were being phased out. We were driving them around at uh, these stupid top heavy land Rovers designed for um, you know, roadblocks in Derry or wherever. Yeah. And so that, that was definitely apparent. I suppose on the it's a it's a weird dynamic here because I think um the I think there's a moment you can almost identify when the Tories become the party of defence. And I think that's the Falklands. If mm. I was to pin down a time mm-hmm. when Thatcher, I always think of the Falklands as the the South Atlantic leg of Margaret Thatcher's re-election campaign. 100%, and she yeah. gave the military, mm. I think, the previous year a massive pay rise, and it was almost like she was trying to win it over. And I think that was the last, the last kind of vestiges of a, a, a I mean, it's a very, it's a wobbly term, but the idea of a people's army and a kind of communitarian mm. thing from a hangover from World War II, where they all came back and voted Labour. I think that was the the last kind of embers of that was the Falklands when mm. we were like, no, we're going to be a colonial power and here's a massive pay rise um, for the, not massive, but probably massive for the army mm. uh, if you're average squaddy. And so I think that that was a, a period, that was a moment where there was kind of a break, I suppose, with what had been and the lingering ideas of a World War II people's army such as it still existed in the early 80s, late 70s. If there was a breach, and maybe it's worth trying to identify a breach, I think it was around then. And that's certainly when the Tories became the party of defence, which is what they like to claim. Um, uh, and, of course, like a lot of the, the 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 Tories in the coming up to the 2010 election, which is when I left, well, was kicked out of the army through military jail, uh, that was the, the, the Tories were weaponizing a lot of stuff. Like Gordon Brown wrote a letter to a, uh, the mom of a lad who'd been killed in Afghanistan. And, and it was something like his his signature handwriting was really scruffy and it became a huge issue. Um, and, oh, it, yeah, and they I used remember. that stuff. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah, and they used a lot of that stuff, and then a lot of this—the kind of dolchstoss, the stab in the back stuff—was about equipment, and it was about mm. labor, the, be, the bureaucratic bean counters. You know the line mm. uh, that they give of, of labor, the kind of penny pinching um, accountants of labor had let the troops down, and so they—they they certainly also the Tories certainly also jumped on it then, mm. going into the twenty ten election to make sure there
1: aren't any troops left. <laughs> that's yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, and that's it because they they do that and they continue to do that, but of course they are they have viciously cut the military the army was 120,000 uh, when i joined which is i think it's <laughs> about the size of the u.s marine corps yeah um, but um now it, it obviously it's and the, the line they keep rolling out it's not an, necessarily untrue is that now our army is smaller than the army of the peninsula war of waterloo and so yeah they're definitely happy to to weaponize that mm. stuff while cutting cutting the military
0: it's interesting to me because the thought had crossed my mind that the Falklands was kind of like exercising the ghosts of Suez to the British, mm-hmm. the sort of Tory conception of the military. Yeah. Whereas the American equivalent of that would be the Gulf War, and to, yeah. to a lesser extent Grenada and Panama. Yeah. Br- uh, British
1: officers in uniform not being allowed into steak houses across <laughs> West London. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but um, yeah, Milo, I know you've you've got fur- further stuff you were gonna you were gonna address. I
1: yeah, I well, I was just thinking based on on the basis of. Uh, um, uh, us bringing up the equipment in Afghanistan. You've got to tell your story about the British officer in the Humvees. Oh my
0: god! Okay, well, so it wasn't it wasn't um, an officer? Rather, it was me talking. So I'd been reading the news, and we also had a we had a a, a British journalist who was in embed with our unit for a while, and he had also been an embed with the British British military in 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 Helmand and and Ganar provinces, and he was talking to me about. You know some of the problems they were facing because you know the Taliban had been sort of upping the uh, the overall payload of the bombs they were planting, you know, in culverts and on the roads and stuff. And those were meant to target up armored Humvees. Um, and when they were hitting Land Rovers, that was just obliterating them. Uh, we were facing the same problem that when they started uh, bringing in heavier armored vehicles like MRAPS, uh, the Humvees themselves, even the the, the, the absolute limit of up armoring, uh. uh uh, M eleven fifty one up armored Humvee with like the Frag seven kit. I think weighs something like eleven thousand pounds. And at a certain point, like the the axles cannot handle any more mm. weight. Like especially when you have the up armored turret and all this stuff. Like it's just too heavy. Yeah.
1: So it's like those proud boys, you know, with all that gear on. Yeah. yeah exactly. At a certain point, their knees I, I, are just gonna give out. I was gonna out. say at a
0: certain point, the, the when you have like eighteen different hundred round drum magazines, like mm. you probably won't be able to move tactically or even yeah. get down and not be like a huge mound mm. on the on the floor. So we were having the same problem that bombs were being built to target MRAPs and when they mm-hmm. were hitting Humvees they were what we'd call a catastrophic kill they were completely destroying the vehicle and typically killing everyone inside. Mm-hmm. When a bomb a b- bomb that big goes off on even on a armored Humvee a flat bottom uh, Humvee it folds it up like a fucking book and everyone inside is either burned alive or just destroyed. Like it's mm-hmm. it's horrendous. And um so we also had the phenomenon at the time of stop-lossing, which has been... That th- term gets thrown around a lot, and a lot of mm. people don't understand what it means, but stop-lossing yeah. basically... kind of hair cream for men. <laughs> uh. Stop-lossing basically means that if you were going to... Your, your enlistment contract was up. Mm. and Say you're, you're, you're about to hit three years on your enlistment contract in June, mm. uh, but your unit is deploying in March. Your unit not only has the right to, but will keep you for that whole deployment until you come back and then you can be let out of the army. Mm. So they also had a thing called stop move, which is that if you were on orders to go to a new duty station and a new unit that wasn't going to deploy yet, it doesn't matter. They've got you. They, they can stop mm. your orders and you can come along. So you have soldiers who like they think they're getting out of the army. They've only enlisted for a certain amount of time, mm. but they're being held past their enlistment date so they can be deployed. And, and that's how you get motivated people. Yeah. So in, 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 invariably, you, uh, you wind up with um, you know, guys that's exactly incredibly motivated soldiers who are supposed to be out of the army by now, but are being taken to a war zone. And you know, especially when this was happening, the peak of this happening was 04, I myself, while I was in training, saw a formation of guys who were even worse than stop loss. uh, Inactive ready reserve callbacks they had enlisted and their contract was like three years or four years active duty and four years on IRR, which is like a, you don't have to report to a unit, but you technically are on IRR status. Mm-hmm. They had called these guys up from civilian life and they're like, nope, you're back in the army and you're fucking deploying again. And I saw Seriously. a formation of guys getting marched around Fort Benning who looked, they all looked incredibly mad and many of them looked like metalheads. And I was just like, fuck guys, your life really sucks right now. Yeah. But anyway, this a long story, sorry, I I'm roundabout storytelling here. But um, yeah, we had a stop loss soldier from our support company and he was like, fuck you. I'm not fucking getting in a Humvee. Put, you are not taking me out on patrol unless I'm in an MRAP. Fuck you. What are you going to do? Kick me out. of Please kick me out of the army. I'm mm. supposed to be out of the army and me probably not you know not not yet being radicalized i just completely lost my mind with this kid because i was like motherfucker there are people in the british army down in hellman right now getting their dicks blown off and you know what the fuck they're saying god damn i wish i had a fucking humvee right now a fucking up armored humvee that would be so luxurious versus this piece of shit that i'm driving (laughs) yeah you don't understand you little bitch there are people eating wigan
2: kebabs
0: (laughs) down in down in hellman province do you know what that is i don't fucking know but i don't want to find out but that's the thing, right? Is that like ultimately I look at it very differently now. I mean, but mm. I don't blame him for doing what he did. I just at the time was a first lieutenant in a fucking paratrooper mm. unit and I was just like, you piece of shit. Um but then also it's like everything we did, every every other military was sort of in the shadow of us. And like those bombs were meant to blow up the biggest American vehicles. And if you were mm. unlucky squatty from, you know, the British military, like you're 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 toast, like you're fucked. Mm. And uh and that. It did strike me that yeah, like it seemed like the kit that I saw because I, I saw a little bit of it when I was at Bagram, but then I definitely saw the same kit that was I saw in Bagram almost identical in Australia. I was like, yeah, these vehicles look cool to like drive to the beach, but fucking, I wouldn't want to be surviving IEDs hmm. in a Humvee. Like this doesn't look like a military vehicle to me. This looks like a bitchin' safari vehicle. <laughs> and uh, yeah, man, it struck me that you guys got you guys had a lot of stuff that was sort of intended for a different era and a different conflict mm. and yeah, totally. and it was just totally, yeah. not satisfactory for the conditions.
2: No. I, think, and I think it's that thing where it gradually started to catch up by which time we pulled out anyway. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, I, think, yeah. I think it probably did improve over time. I just had a weird, there was actually I was just the stop loss. I haven't heard it, but the, um, there was a film about stop-loss called Stop-loss, wasn't there? I just, yeah, it was I terrible. I just remember the material <laughs> talents of Ryan Felipe playing the movie yeah. in this film about stop-loss, which is actually quite good for a Ryan Felipe film. It's very funny, Story too, because so many people didn't realize,
0: like, stop-loss got invoked as a term. It became, like, kind of a catchphrase, but nobody actually mm. knew what it meant, and so it, yeah. <laughs> it sort of felt like anytime anyone when the, that was in the military was complaining on Facebook about the military fucking them over, like, their civilian family members, was like, oh, no, is that a stop-loss? And it's like, <laughs> no, it's actually, like, like like, Like, uh, you being denied a 48-hour pass because you can't pass a PT (laughs) test is not a stop
2: loss. Just go with it, yes. Yes, that's a
0: stop (laughs) loss. Please call my congressman and complain to him that I'm being stop lost by the military. I've been weight lost by the military. Because they're not letting me fucking eat desserts in the defect.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The ultimate punishment for the American soldier is being sent to the British dining facility.
2: (laughs) Where you get served a
1: jug of gravy.
2: treacle sponge of fish finger sandwiches. Oh, yeah gleaming just like the
0: grizzled <laughs> sergeant but like you didn't even want to know what the fuck i've seen they have a thing called spotted dick it's so <laughs> fucked up
1: <laughs> and you've been issued with one smack bump. <laughs>
2: and they will and they will serve it in 50 degrees down <laughs> somewhere as well a red hot molten Molten custard. <laughs> you can only imagine, <laughs> it, man. Salad.
1: <laughs> yeah, my sort of my sort of perception of of the British Army, and I think we can we can sort of get into I think the sort of like the officer enlisted divide thing that you were touching a bit on yeah. earlier. But also, it just just in a sort of general sense is that it has kind of the vibe of of Britain in general, which is that like yeah, it's shit. It's supposed to be shit. If you don't like it, you can fuck off.
2: Um, yeah. yeah. Talk to the union. It was the regular, <laughs> the regular thing that NCOs would say if it was shit. Like talk to the fucking union, lads. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and that does, and I think that is kind of goes back almost a bit to the sort of like the perception of the army again as this kind of like not like there's. This, I think there's a sense with the American military that it's expected to be like well equipped and capable and like whereas the british army is expected to be like odd like you're like it's kind yeah. of there's almost seemed to be like this virtue in it not really being equipped and like this kind of just like yeah they're just the lads they just yeah. fucking get it done
2: yeah that's definitely true it's definitely, make doing mend um was the idea Make do it like and he would always we would always Talk about ourselves in relationship to the Americans. Blah, you got a fucking swimming pool down there, lads, and all, <laughs> and all this, all this brilliant stuff. And you're, and, you're, and you're, but you'll be living in a hole two miles down the road. Yeah, mm. um, and we, it was always about that comparison with with Big Brother, um, as it were. And the idea was that we were good. We were good at what we did because we put up with with more shit and had worse equipment. I obviously, that didn't really work out in the long term. Looking at twenty years in Afghanistan, no, because um, we, we were just shit, and that was the end of it. Um, but that was definitely part of the, the kind of way we thought about ourselves, I think, that, you know, best rifleman, shit rifle, but we're the best soldiers pound for pound uh, mm. on Earth, et cetera. You know, the usual. And I'm sure every army on Earth uh, says that to itself yeah. as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, the, we we I'm sure we had better in terms of ballistic protection equipment than, say, the German Army but or the French mm-hmm. Army. And we definitely had better close air support in terms of like availability. Mm -hmm. But everyone was like, oh, the fucking French, they have wine in their rations. They have good food in their rations, like shit fucking rules in the French military, you know, stuff like that. Whereas, like, yeah. yeah, but if you're a French paratrooper, like, you basically get issued socks made out of what feels like sandpaper, and you're expected to, you know, do a do a like a battalion size airborne insertion on an exercise, and then rock forty kilometers. It's like yeah. we weren't really doing that that often, even in a, mm. a paratroop unit in the U.S. So, like, <laughs> French, like, you about these guys in the British Army? Is they're allowed to have young boys readily accessible? <laughs> <laughs> but something I was gonna point out about the. um the officer enlisted divide is that I think the, the, the really the kind of culture around it in America comes from the fact that, you know, for a long time, America didn't have an active duty army officer corps that was not graduates of the mm. West Point, the military academy at West mm. Point. But the way you get into West Point is by being appointed, you know, by recommended by your elected representative. So, you know, mm. like every congressperson can send one person, I think, per year, and then each senator can send one and then the governor and that kind of a thing. Um, And so
1: being put under the command of the officer sent there by Jess Phillips.
0: Yeah. I mean, so basically I don't know how it works here, but, but what that creates is you have situations where like, you know, a general like Omar Bradley, for example, from who was, you know, of world war two fame was just like, this plowboy from fucking Kansas or Nebraska, I think, mm. who just was like a pretty good student and mm. wanted to be in the army, and you know, in like 1909, applied, wrote his congressman, you know, like, you know, <laughs> uh, who's probably like weird 19th century name, like dear congressman Fernando Sheridan or something like that. Mm. Uh, I want to go to West Point, and so he did, and like he. You know, Bradley famously, like, never smiled in his photos because he got his teeth knocked out in a car accident when he was in his 20s. Like, he was absolutely like, extremely country. And then mm. he goes on to be, you know, uh, a very senior, you know, four-star general in the U.S. Army in World War II. Not so much the case over here. And it's like, I'm not... Uh, n- th- I'm, this isn't meant to be a wind-up to a, you know, bad teeth joke. It's more that... uh I felt like the way one became an officer, particularly back then in the British Army and had a career where you became someone of that significance in the military, like Mm. it wasn't entirely 100% closed off to people who weren't from upper-class backgrounds, but it might as well have been. It was like the impression that I get, and I mean, reading stuff like, um, uh, was it Robert Hughes' goodbye to all that and stuff like that, Mm. I got the impression that like, Mm. yeah, there was some... Social mobility, because after the first year or so of World War One, so many of those guys died that like they needed more officers. Yeah. Well, at this point, I
1: think it behoves us to do a bit of history, doesn't it? Because I think even going back a bit to the kind of like, well, there's there's not many of them and they haven't got much gear, but there are sort of thing. Yeah. I think kind of dates back to World War One, where you've got like the British Expeditionary Force, a hundred thousand of the world's flattest nose geezers. Um, who are, you know, kneeling down in a field and shooting at the Germans. Um, and then uh, the strategy of they were basically taking kids straight out of Eton at, like, 17, 18, and making them, like, platoon leaders. And, of course, like, uh, I think it's basically the highest casualty rate ever was British junior officers Jesus in World Christ. War One. Uh,
0: yeah. It's just funny, because as a former captain, I'm like, that's a terrible idea. And I imagine for you, Joe, as, as, as a former corporal, that's a fucking terrible idea. But you could imagine how to, like... An eighteen-year-old, yeah. they're like, "Oh, brilliant! I'm going to be an officer. I'm going to go do glory in battle." And it's like, <laughs> like cricket. You are
2: going to die. Yeah, see, it's it's funny here. Just to, just to go back briefly to our original point, I think mm. it, it varies from from cap badge to cap badge, regiment to regiment. I think there are there are there's an a, an element for meritocracy in the British way, where under close inspection, it's not meritocracy at all. But like, I think in the in the corps, like the engineers or the logistics corps, uh, there are a lot of off young officers, subalterns who were like Mancunian or Scousers. Mm. Or, but, and it's partly about, I suppose, about the expansion of university education, isn't mm. it? Like basically you need a degree to get into Sandhurst. Not everyone does. I mean, like Johnny Mercer just had A-levels. Harry just had A-levels, but he was always going to be an officer, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he I barely think, had guess, A-levels. Well, yeah, yeah. And I, but I think, I think like there are, like if you are going to be an officer in the guards mm. or particular cavalry regiments, then I think you're gonna probably have descended from a long line of people who are in the same regiment, and it, I don't know if it's still a stipulation, but a lot of those units you need to have a second income because mm-hmm. that's how you can pay off the fines in in uh, excellent port that you get in a mess for turning up late or with the wrong hat on or whatever. I um, so I think it, it, there, there's there's you know in certain units the the not the very smart regiments which you see cutting around London. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, outside of that, there probably is some scope for to be like working class and an officer or lower middle class and and get a commission and so on and so on. So I think it's a, it's a weird mix of things in uh, in the British military. In the other services, I'm not so sure. So, someone did, mm. to come back to your other point, tell me the other day, an ex-RAF guy, he was like, the RAF's got it right because it's the only service that sends you The officers do all the fighting and everyone else stays at the back <laughs> because the officers are all pilots, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's, that's actually quite a good idea. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's a, yeah, it's a mix of things here, I think, in terms of, the class makeup of the the officer corps, as it were.
1: Yeah, I'd agree with I mean, again, my perception of it as being like completely not involved in the military, but um, uh, I know quite a few people who've ended up being army officers. I know a couple mm-hmm. of people who are quite posh, who went in from Cambridge to like, and they interviewed at guards regiments and were both yeah. like, this is too much for me. Like people who went to boarding school and are like, you guys are too posh. Like this (laughs) is like a level, like one of my mates said he was at the interview for, I think it was the Grenadier guards. And another guy was sat next to him. He was also interviewing. And one of the like captains who was doing the interview, whatever came out and was like, Oh, bloody good show i know your brother yes you're an exeter aren't you and how is the rugger um and just like that he was like no i just cannot fucking do this i'm just gonna leave
0: there is no equivalent to that to my knowledge in the u.s army i mean Mm -hmm. the other branches of service maybe i don't i don't think so Uh, what i will say is that there are certain things where uh, like there was a joke for a while that in the Ranger regiment, there was, uh, which is a whole special thing in, in the mm. U S army, that there was sort of a cult that like, if you went to West point and specifically if you played rugby at West point, like you had an in like rugby because, at West. Point. Yeah. Yes. There was uh rugby is r- rugby is kind of like, it's not really a posh sport in America. It's more of like a psycho sport. Like friends of mine who were super in shape stoners played rugby. Like mm, that's, that's uh, kind of the vibe. Whereas lacrosse, obviously super, super posh equivalent in America. Yeah. But like, yeah, wow. West Point was like a, like the West Point rugby team, The, the one of the coaches mm. for the team or the assistant coaches was like an active duty army officer who then went on to be like mm. a senior officer in the Ranger regiment. And so there was that kind of a thing. But that level of like the fanciness, I didn't ever encounter that. The only thing I could say is that. In some units, like there's an there's a single brigade of uh, mm-hmm. air, of airborne units in uh, one brigade combat team based out of um, uh, Camp Ederley in Vicenza, Italy, mm-hmm. and it's like considered the most high sex assignment you can get like just because it's a cool place to be stationed and it's a light infantry airborne unit and stuff to see getting asses and so like yeah. that's like super west point heavy like if the the lieutenants who go there the guys who get to be company commanders there, like by and large are going to be west pointers that like, does exist mm. but you just don't have that equivalent of what you're just what you just described joe of like the idea of like you need to have extra income from your family to be to able to afford the fan like like yeah if i if i showed up at a u.s army officer's thing with a bottle of port people would be like "What well, the fuck are you gay <laughs> like it's just not gonna happen yeah you know however if i show up yeah. with like if i show up with like a novelty keg of like fucking bush light or something like that everyone would be like hell yeah good show man exactly <laughs> well,
1: yeah i mean if you showed up at a guard's regimental dinner they'd probably be quite worried if you weren't gay you know <laughs> yeah. be, you get in the officer's mess you know the, what, yeah, what happens yeah, I, days I would there.
0: just say i would just say that that um and my impression also during the global war on terror uh, was that the military recruiting was struggling and ROTC standards obviously re- dropped a lot because they wanted to grow the army and they wanted to bring people in. And I mean, for better or worse, you can go to college for free and be guaranteed a job. And a lot of guys did that. And so you wound up with this situation where uh, the officer corps in the US army is, um, I think, would make a lot of British people uncomfortable because like, it, it, the higher you go, the more like overtly evangelical Christian it is. But- um, um, but like, by and large, like my peers were not, mm. they were not fancy. They mm. were, uh, they were by and large, like mostly people from the suburbs, but like a lot of working class people too. Um, and it wasn't that hard to be an officer back then. Mm. And so That's like, yeah, it's just, it's just a completely different culture, even though we were fighting alongside each other in the same conflict, like just completely different planet in a way. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I think, though, no. what Joe was saying about it being very different in different bits of the service is true. Because, again, even from my, like, incredibly limited experience, like, I would say most of the people I knew from Cambridge who went into the army, they were into, like, doing, doing like, the most, like, hardcore shit that would look good on their CV and then, like, leaving and getting a good job. So they mostly wanted to be – either they wanted to be in the guards because they wanted to, like, network and be with all the poshos – or they wanted to be in like the Gurkhas or whatever because it's like really hard to get in and it's like mm-hmm. prestigious that sort of thing and I get the impression that you get kind of there's that sort of variation and I think this happens with Enlisted as well where it's like a weird smashing together of people who are like super motivated and people who are kind of like I guess I'll join the army like you've got like yeah, kind yeah. of like one of my mates in Cambridge who's like in the Gurkhas and is like super into it and then you've got the kind of like 2-2 two, two from Leeds people both becoming army officers and then like I remember one of my friends worked at a law firm with a guy who enlisted in the british army like from a super rough background but had done well at school and was like the youngest sergeant in the british army and then got a scholarship to go to uni and then ended up being like the youngest yeah. like trainee at some like corporate law firm or something you know like that and then you also get guy with like no prospects goes to the army ends up being homeless like it's a weird like mixture of all of those different people
2: I think in, in some units another thing when I think about it is it's like it's very it's not I suppose the Royal Marine and the Paratrooper are quite different beasts like the Royal mm. Marine is a rugby team captain and the Paratrooper is like the football team captain mm. but I think it's it's quite often the case I've I've heard or I know that guys it's not about the rank so much as the unit like if you're desperate to be a Royal Marine very often those guys go in front of the commissioning board fail and join as a as a private as a Marine anyway. Um, and it's the same with the Paris guys. will try and get in the Paris as an officer, and failing that, they just want to be in the Paris, so they join as a private soldier. So there's also like obviously some units have a more profound ideological kind of component, don't they? Which is probably those elite type units probably have that a lot more. Certainly, that's my my understanding here. Um, that they just want to be that thing, you know.
0: Could you talk a little bit about the the ideological side of things? Because my impression is that that's something that's I mean, don't get me wrong the u s. military is pretty right wing, but that's something that I've been surprised is, is um my my cousin was a uh, uh i think he is now a major but was previously enlisted. He got up to being like a i think the, i think a color sergeant I'm not sure of the term, but he was a senior NCO in the British Army for a while, and then he went back in the army, and i think he commissioned He was in Northern Ireland in the late '80s, and he invited me on a Facebook group to like some million veteran march thing that was it struck me as basically oh, like a
2: like a. The fucking Frey don't don't prosecute <laughs>
0: Soldier F, kind of thing, and yeah, 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 yeah. it struck me that like it seemed so much more uniformly right wing, even than American veteran things I'd seen, and specifically the Paris struck me as being like extraordinarily so, and know, I mean, I think mm. uh,
2: Milo is probably the subject matter expert on the Paris. He, he's got he's got the line down perfectly. I think, <laughs> but I, I would say I would say um, uh, there's something. It's a generational thing as well, and I've tried to unpick this. Writing, Mm. I think there's something about Northern Ireland, and something about the kind of profound bitterness of that generation of veterans. Are the worst blazers, are the Mm. guys with the Northern Ireland General Service Medal in their in their profile picture? The protect soldier F, the there was the sniper on the roof on Bloody Sunday, etc. There's something about that generation, and it's partly I think uh, because I mean it's partly because. A lot of those guys, I think they granddads or whatever. Dads had served in the wars of decolonization and World War Two, and they probably expected to be fighting the Russians in mass set-piece battles. What they actually ended up doing was kicking in fucking doors in houses that looked like their own. We wanted um, to die. Why won't yeah. you let us die? <laughs> it's, it like, it's just something about something about that group. Mm. Falklands veterans can be similar but it's quite, it's, and it's also because they're boomers. They're like boomer veterans. I think there's a bunch of different kind of things coming together to make them. So the million men, March guys and veterans for veterans and veterans, one voice and all these groups, which I'm a member of purely for research reasons. <laughs> um, a lot of my Northern Ireland veterans and it, it, yeah, they are particularly reactionary mm. like deeply, deeply. Like they're, they're the like shoot Corbin guys. Yeah. And they're also like the Tony Blair shoot, Tony Blair as well. Guys, um, uh, like, Everything is every, everything that's vaguely liberal left wing in their mind is formulated into into some neo Marxist postmodernist however you want to mm. um, formulate it kind of plots uh, and and other generations of veterans I think like I've never seen anything like that with World War Two veterans for example mm. and I, I don't see it yet with um, Iraq and Afghan veterans I hope that our kind of ex-military future isn't quite that bitter, though I'm mm-hmm. starting to see it. I'm starting to see the kind of stab in the back shit, which is mm-hmm. a big component of how Northern Ireland veterans think about their, their military experience. Mm-hmm. Um But they, they, honestly, there's something about, which I guess is like 69 through the 80s, the kind of Troubles era, guys, that's really, really just dark, man. It's fucking dark. Mm.
0: I, I feel like there's a lot of that, the The most right-wing reactionary veterans in America that you will meet, in my opinion, are Marines who served in Iraq between 03 and, say, 11, but specifically okay. the guys who served in Ramadi, Fallujah, in the really dark time in the mm-hmm. war, like yeah. in 05, 06, 07. I mean, my unit went to Iraq. I wasn't there yet, but they went to Iraq in 06, 07. And, you know, whereas our brigade in Afghanistan had a notionally rough deployment in the sense that we had like i think 12 people die in the in the brigade seven in my battalion something like 25 or 30 seriously wounded Mm. um my brigade in iraq had 52 people die and like 250 seriously wounded and those aren't big numbers by like world war ii standards by any means but Mm. that's that's pretty bad but then the marines you talk to marines you'll see stories of you know, a single battalion losing 26 guys in Iraq and then having an equivalent number of suicides within the first like five years back. Mm, like, yeah, it's yeah. really, really grim. And you do see, yeah, kind of piecemeal some situations where it's much, much worse. But for me, at least, like, I have seen that anger. I have seen like what you're describing, Joe, but I haven't seen as much of it from people my age or slightly younger mm. what i've seen yeah. has been the most vitriol that i've ever encountered and obviously most of this is online but also like you know I'm one of these people i know in real life um it's it's mostly from yeah like boomers it's from from uh yeah. northern ireland and to some extent falklands vets on my twitter thing with the guy saying he wants to fight me at the cenotaph that guy's a falklands vet <laughs> like yeah, it's yeah. wild yeah. but it, mm. it it does one
1: last battle for that guy
0: and it does strike me that like the, maybe maybe it's it's that the British military and the veteran culture isn't necessarily more right wing than American. It's just that I'm so inured to like the right wingness of the American side because like I was in that I wasn't ever right wing, but I was in that environment. Whereas here I'm encountering this for like the first time, and there are there are moments like the. You know the, the 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 joke about. I think Alice made this joke on Trash Shooter about you know the guy very happily showing up to get his photo taken with a, a Tory politician wearing a shirt saying like you know Soldier F did nothing wrong or like you know Northern
1: Ireland S- we did war crimes
2: and it was good yeah, yeah
0: yes yeah Bloody Sunday yes we did it and we'll do it again that kind of a thing.
2: Um, I'm a man who even Douglas Murray thinks is guilty. <laughs> I don't know if you've read that piece. Even Douglas Murray's like no he did it like the most reactionary writer in in British. Um, the mm. british commentariat is like now nah, he's a fucking horrible man <laughs> you
1: know? i think that a lot of like we kind of have this you have that sort of like world war one thing where the sort of like modern p- conception of the army is formed and then you have world war Two, which is obviously just like a much bigger war where like lots more things get dragged in but then you also get this formation of like the the commandos and the sas and then this kind of yeah. what latterly then i think shifts to become how like uh, i think britain but both like as as a people and as a government almost like conceives of its armed forces as this kind of like smaller uh like more elite uh kind of thing and then i think sort of the peak of that is probably the iranian embassy siege um yeah i remember reading a a really interesting comment from uh it was one of the one of the whoever the, the scottish trooper who was like the famous shot of him like swinging through the window um yeah Sandy Andy something I want to say yeah yeah, and, and he said that the Iranian embassy siege ruined the SAS because it made everyone think it was cool and so then suddenly yeah, yeah. everyone was trying to join the SAS and they didn't realise that most of the time you're just like in a forest looking at something through binoculars and shitting into cling film for like four days
2: yeah, yeah. I mean I, I've got a, I've put a chapter on that in the book mm. it's about the, sad, the sadness of Aunt Middleton who is the <laughs> ultimate product of the kind of, of, the, of, the kind of how how the SAS stopped being very special because mm. um, it has this weird status where it's like it's the most secretive unit in the on the planet, but it's also one of the most well publicized. Like everyone mm. has a fucking book out, yeah. everyone has a TV series, and that that process. Yeah, I think I think that was when it started to slip from. Uh, I mean, Brit- the British Army likes to think of itself and constantly tells itself it is, and I quote, "the best small army in the world," mm. and the idea of something something small and slick and elite um, is, is part of the composition, I suppose. Mm. But definitely the slide through the Iranian embassy stuff. Um, and I suppose it was timing because it was on a bank holiday and everyone was at, at home or something like that. It was it was like live televised over a bank holiday, which <laughs> is one of the reasons it got so big. <laughs> they were
1: like, um, all the Brits are at the pub, let's do it now. <laughs> yeah, just bang it on, bang it on yeah. the
2: TV. But th- but then through that, through the kind of Andy McNabb and Chris Ryan stuff, mm. um, it, gradually these things. And now, and that the, the expression of that now is Ant Middleton, like the world, the world's most angry man, <laughs> um, do, doing his thing. Um, and uh, uh, that's part of, that's part of the process, which means that if you walk into Waterstones or Foils, there will be an entire floor dedicated to the kind of military death cults, um, and some of it will be like memoirs. Obviously, there'll be just loads of memoirs from like Soldier F, Apache Pilot Seven, Sniper Two. Mm. Um, but some of it, increasingly, it's kind of and Aunt Middleton's a good example has become like, it's just influencer shit, isn't it? It's just self-blaming neoliberal influencer shit. Like it's all your fault, but mm. I can help you 10X your fucking Bitcoin scam <laughs> with the secret dark powers of the special boat service. And mm. so, there, I mean, there's obviously a market for that shit. I kind of think of it as an extent. It's, it's also got part of it's an extension of the kind of 2000s, like true crime, like I was a gangster. I was an East End gangster shit. It's kind of taken over that as well in terms of like Mm. memoirs. Military Dave Courtney, basically. Yeah. Yeah, 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 and I'm sure there must. I mean, there, there. I know there are equivalents in the states as well. Nate of these guys Mm. who are kind of scamming off their scamming off the military service. I don't blame. But if I could, if I could pitch Channel Four and have a series like Royal Logistics Corps, are you fucking on the sick enough? I would. Are you (laughs)
1: organised enough? (laughs) Can you
2: can you drive a big enough truck or whatever? I would. Or stack enough blankets. I'd be there. I'd do it. But there's no market for it. So I kind of Mm. get why. I mean, what else are they going to do? In a way, they're going to come out and do private military shit after mm. doing twenty years. You know, I don't blame them, but it is also irritating at the same time.
0: It's very funny to me because uh, the U.S. equivalent of uh, basically formed specifically to be like the SAS is what we call the called Delta Force, but uh, most recently it was called CAG. I don't know if they have a new name. They always change their name to be as secret as possible. Yeah. And those the <laughs> veterans of, of Delta don't really do this as much. There's some, but right. not that much. Obviously, we have SEAL the Team The Navy six, SEALs. The Navy they SEALs. Love yes. it. They love it. it. They? they are They are worse in a way than the SAS about this. Um, but it's just very, very funny to me because, uh, yeah, that, that that phenomenon exists like you're describing. Everything from sort of like military military stuff to make you better at trading Bitcoin uh, General Stanley McChrystal now has a consultancy group that like goes around to like corporate offices and is like, l- "We'll we'll make your corporate people pretend like they're company commanders in Afghanistan and they can like do mm. a mission to learn military problem solving skills." And yeah, It's so yeah. stupid, but and I think anyone who's was ever in will look at this and be like, "This is a grift. This is the dumbest shit I've ever heard in my life." Yeah. You know, it's fucking stupid. It's so stupid, but <laughs> but there is this We're on a corporate bonding expedition where we're like tr- practicing being British Army
1: officers. Yeah. They've taken us out on a boat and we've got to empty our filing <laughs> cabinets into. The-
2: the <laughs> yeah. fucking bizarre isn't it i also like when i look at sas are you tough enough Where mm. and middleton's one with the, the other guys i think the other guys i think are all right i know guys who've met those guys on selection and stuff like that. apparently those those are like fairly decent blokes and middleton mm. obviously is a huge fucking screamer to be honest mm. but um it's also the the idea that format of that show i don't know if you've seen it but the format is nothing like special forces selection mm. it's like basic training like on special forces selection, and I know this set like secondhand from guys who've done it. There's none of this screaming and shouting. That's all for mm. recruits. Yeah, That's not for, if you arrive at special forces training, selection in the UK, you've done at least four or five years. You're normally mm. a, a junior NCO and they're watching you to see if you fuck up, but they're not screaming and shouting no. and tipping your mm. bed over. And yeah. that is just, that it just doesn't seem to reflect. This show doesn't seem to reflect anything about kind of special forces training in my understanding. Anyway, British Special Forces training. That is
1: basically the number one thing when you read about anyone going through British Special Forces training, because they've usually come from the paras or some sort of like similarly fairly yeah. like tough Almost unit. Almost all of
2: them for the SAS. It's like 70% paras.
1: Yeah. And then they say the shocking thing getting to SAS selection is that no one's yelling at you, yeah. because it's entirely about can you get through this on your own? Like no one's trying yeah. to help you do it. They're, if anything, like, but, like daring you to quit.
0: I, I th- yeah. that's the funny thing that when you said that that figure 70 percent that's almost the mm. exact same for members of delta force who are former ranger regiment and obviously yeah. delta is super mm. nco driven there's very few officers and so um the overwhelming majority of guys because quite frankly rangers are the, is, that's one of the units where you will actually get enough experience to be a good enough marksman to pass mm. not just delta selection yeah. but then the delta operator course yeah. um yeah. as the rangers I, always say they sure do yeah i mean i i uh I oh God fucking Milo's doing a call back to a to a to a I'll tell you this story, Joe, because you I think you will appreciate this. <laughs> so you know you maybe you've encountered this, and I don't know if the British Army has a similar thing, mm. uh, but in the u s Army, there's a very common thing. there's a unit motto that you say that soldiers will say to the officers when they're saluting them, and there's a thing you say back, like I was in a unit that was formed as a test unit when they first started doing paradrop operations right in the beginning of World War II. And so our unit motto was Geronimo and the soldiers would say Geronimo, sir. And I would have to say airborne back to them. Um, And obviously with Rangers, it's Rangers lead the way. That's their thing. Rangers fucking lead the way. Like they're everywhere. Rangers, Rangers, Ranger, whatever. So Fort Benning, where I did my initial training is the site of Ranger regiment headquarters and one of their battalions and like their special troops battalion. And, most importantly, the ranger indoctrination program, which is like the junior enlisted to join the rangers thing, which is just the most brutal fucking hazing I've ever seen in my life. Like we were adjacent to them in our barracks and like their PT sessions had dudes foaming at the mouth. Um, one night we came back late from a night fire and we saw them forcing rangers to carry wall lockers up and down a staircase and then set up a <laughs> barracks room outside on a parking lot and then bring it all back in like nonstop hazing. Um, and so basically, Milo's, Milo's making this joke because one time, r- Ranger privates are so indoctrinated. Like, you, you, you are not a human being and you don't deserve to be alive until you've got your tab. And so like, if you're a junior enlisted Ranger, you're just constantly being abused. And they're very, very quick on the salute of like, Rangers lead the way, uh, saluting yeah. everyone. And my buddy was out one time um, and he was walking and he was he ran up talking to this captain he didn't know who was like a military intelligence, like soft skill, very not elite unit guy. And mm-hmm. they were walking past and the five or six ranger privates come in a little gaggle and they see him, they see the captain like Reginald the Waster, And this captain who's like, doesn't give a fuck. is like, yep, they sure do. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yeah, that, that to me was kind of indicative of the difference between them. But, um, yeah, but I would say that that's 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 a similar thing to um, that Ra- yeah. Ranger School is getting screamed at in haste. Whereas Special mm-hmm. Forces selection, yeah. aside from the uh, log and rifle PT section, they never yell at you. It's just mm-hmm. like, all right, get up, carry heavy thing, go. All right, we're timing you.
2: My my again, second hand understanding is that par- like parachute regiment training is very much like that because you do it all on the same basis. The other shit regiments, the hat regiments, as they're called, mm. uh, the crap hat regiments, and yeah, and and Special Forces selection is much more complex. Uh, it's much more um grown up, I suppose. Yeah. Mm. It's the way it's been explained to me. Because uh, the gray man, it's the idea of the gray man isn't it. Like, can you work in a small unit and mm. keep your mouth shut? and you, Can you not be obnoxious? I don't know how the fuck Aunt Middleton made it through. That
0: was the same thing with us. The silent professional. They were always going on about the silent professional. Yeah. Mm.
2: I always feel that the British Army has diminished by not having a kind of things like Rangers lead the way and who are and all this shit. We <laughs> don't have any of that shit. They're like, go and do this and you're like, all right, all right, right. <laughs> Crack on, we'll, just, we'll just go and do it. We don't really have that kind of executive Thing that we shout back, if you know what I mean. Yeah, and I think we should we should introduce it. I don't know what it would yeah. be. Like, t- Tally <laughs> Yeah, I wonder. Yeah, I think we like just that.
1: know we'd be bad at it. It's the aesthetic, We're isn't really it? Well, it? I'm like I'm really fascinated by military vernacular because I just I do just find a lot of it is just like samey, so but particularly British military vernacular. But yeah, just like yeah. people just saying stuff like crap at crap job or whatever, just like this yeah, kind yeah, of. Yeah, yeah.
0: So uh, to, to to end it off, I I don't know, Joe. Have I ever told you the story about when I was in uh officer basic and that uh, uh i'll lead you into this all right uh, because this I is think very like, funny
1: so I, I think in many ways like what what the british army in a sense has has to offer the the world culturally is its storied tradition of nutters so, yes. uh, we, we yes. did a whole episode on the Falklands War, which, I mean, absolutely go back and listen to that, because we, we drew the conclusion that it was the most dudes rock war. It was just a bunch of guys who were like, right, we're getting our hands on a real war. It's going to be a pisser. Uh, time to get <laughs> fancy with it. Um, <laughs> and so like, you had guys like H. Jones, just like, just man oh, just wanted hell, yeah. to die like yeah. uh, and uh, you know like guys like fucking like Jack Churchill from World War 2 just like carrying a fucking sword and a longbow for like some reason the guy
2: with the polar hat or was that someone else I can't remember I'm not sure it might have been a bowler hat someone at Arnhem was like turned up in a bowler hat or something
1: phenomenal Doughty <laughs> yeah. Wiley beating Ottomans to death with a walking stick at Gallipoli when he was Fantastic. holding a revolver um, yeah, yeah uh, but then I think that this is kind of this sort of pervades it's like a running joke on the trash future stream with the, uh, the British Army colour sergeant uh good morning men it's 4 a.m british time you'll retract your foreskin and use it to salute the queen but (laughs) nate met this man in real
0: life so um i'm gonna paint the picture for you uh this doesn't exist anymore but when i was in uh the, the sort of post i don't know if you're familiar with the whole story of jessica lynch and her unit getting overrun in iraq And the Army decided that as a snap reaction to this, they were going to have a mandatory course for all officers, regardless of branch, even if they were like medical corps or, you know, uh, judge advocate general, where they would do like a six or seven week base, like pre basic basic, where you would do nothing but how to uh, basically marksmanship essentials, how to like actually zero and qualify correctly with the standard issue equipment, um, and then uh, do land navigation. So like orienteering and then also do run a, run a convoy and actually do a convoy live fire. And it was a pretty easy course because it was like our first course in the army, but like it had to have everyone. So like it couldn't be hard. Like it couldn't be like infantry or something insane because you have to like, the, 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 regardless of what they say, they don't want the people who are going to be, you know, ordnance officers or uh, transpo officers or lawyers or doctors to fail out of the course. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And so we got done with this and we show up at our first formation for infantry school, for in the infantry officer basic course and a guy walks over to us wearing a very strange camo pattern and a very strange looking green beret and wearing and carrying a swagger stick and we're sort of like <laughs> what's happening and then this is on this on this at this field somewhere like range I can't remember it in Fort Benning and he says All right, gather around gents basically so we form a circle and he he introduces himself uh, and he's the first sergeant of the infantry school presently or our company presently mm-hmm. and he's uh from the british army he's from a, reg- a regiment in yorkshire um i can't remember his name but uh i just remember this scene very clearly and remember, remember my, my mom's english but like she's mostly americanized i'm familiar somewhat with some british things mm-hmm. not a ton of them and i'll do my best impression of his accent i realize it'll falter a little bit but it's basically along the line he, he starts talking she's like All right, gents, this is not fucking Bodic 2. You will not be on the range chatting shit with your mates on your mobiles. This is good fucking training. It's not private soldier business. And I'm telling you, my Mm. peers were like, Color Sergeant Jason Donovan. What the fuck is this guy saying? Like, and sure enough, every formation, he was there. And uh, his name was uh, Sergeant Major Page. That was his name. Rich Mm -hmm. Page was his name and i just i was like we were so confused by this guy and i mean it was very funny we had a bunch of soldiers or officers from uh middle eastern militaries that were guest students and one of them had gone to sandhurst he was like a crown prince of jordan and so when he was the student first sergeant he was doing the full sandhurst style of drill and ceremony and of course sergeant major page saw this and was like that's fucking right gents that's bloody fucking right like he loved it but my story of him Is that we were on a we did a live fire where we had like a full on like company sized patrol base where it was just like a cop that would never exist in real life Mm -hmm. of just a perfect triangle. So each platoon could be in one big line on a berm on one face and then one on the other and one on the other, and then the you know, (laughs) control center or whatever. So it was it was just Mm -hmm. training. So we were out and it's like we were on a range where we literally are in like a big, big, you know, fire base and we can shoot outward. And it's just training stuff on like rates of fire and signaling and lift and shift fires and things mm-hmm. like that. And I was a, a saw gunner, a light machine gunner in this exercise. So I had a, you know, M249 and piece of shit training weapon that, you know, has been passed down through numerous people and training and it's not that well kept. And I'm firing this thing when, you know, they're telling us to shoot and... It jams and you know, so I, I, I pull the charging handle back, I open the feed tray, I try to fucking check it, put it back, it doesn't work, it's still not fucking working because the the charging handle is jammed up. So I take a knee trying to figure this fucking thing out, and I hear behind me, Are you bulletproof, sir? And I'm just like, <laughs> What? He's like Sir, are you bulletproof? And I was just like, No, Sergeant Major. He's like, Well then get the fuck down and I, and he grabs my rifle my machine gun, he goes Now, Sergeant Majors, we're fucking bulletproof. And he takes his helmet off and he hits the charging handle with his fucking helmet and it rides forward and he gives it back to me. He's like, see if that works then. And I was just like, this guy is <laughs> fucking insane. <laughs> <laughs> this guy is out of his mind. And that's the thing is, that, yeah, I had some cultural context. That was with- actually
1: episode one of Britonology. Did it, was did that happening? It? It, did it did work. It did <laughs>
0: work. That's the thing. It did work. And that's the thing is that I had like some cultural context of, of this. But my only context of the British Army was watching Black Adder goes forth. I had no idea what I was prepared for. And so randomly, yeah. as a brand new infantry lieutenant, I uh, got to meet like Milo has described this. And maybe this is your experience, too, of the sort of like... Archetypal Sandhurst NCO. Yeah. yeah and that's yeah. who this guy was. And I was just like, man, this guy, the, being in this guy's unit must either be incredibly fun or completely psychotic. But like, there's no yeah. middle ground.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So the stick man, as we call him, after the swagger stick, terrifying, terrifying human beings. Very <laughs> <laughs> uh, really terrifying. Don't say the stick man. It's just <laughs> weird to me to
0: think of. I mean, I imagine like if you had, you know, the equivalent of like the. You know the, the the PT monster Southern redneck NCO who's like an E seven who still runs like a twelve minute two mile and never is not having a dip in his lip. And mm-hmm. It's just like in, has been yeah. deployed everywhere, has like zero percent body fat, looks like he smokes a carton a day. Like that's sort yeah. of our equivalent in the U S Army. And it's like imagine if you show up at a British Army training school and like he's your senior NCO. That's mm-hmm. the level yeah. of confusion going on. And I suppose yeah. that to me was like illustrating. Ah, okay this geezer just said we all smell like wolf pussy. <laughs> <laughs> now we got to wrap up. I can't tell that story too. <laughs> Some other time I'll tell you the story about the ranger yeah, yeah. instructor saying we all smelled like wolf pussy. <laughs> <laughs> you have to. Man. Oh, fuck's sake. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, Joe, before we, we wrap up, I want to say, I forgot to mention this in, th- in the introduction, but I know that you have a book coming out and I wanted to give you an opportunity to plug
2: that. Yes. Um, it's with repeat. Uh, it's called Veteranhood. Um, Hope and Rage in Ex-Military Britain. Um, I don't know if I got that right, but the subtitle, but something fucking like that. Just look out for it. Mm. (laughs) Um, Veteranhood is the title. And yeah, it's basically, I'm just basically trying to kind of reflect on, on what it's like to be a veteran now, really, and try and unpick some some of the assumptions, not least on the left, that all veterans are basically either irredeemable fascists Mm. or small C Tories. And look at some of the radical stuff, um, you know, the mutinies and the rebellions and the strikes. Mm. Uh, and also talk a lot about why why we are right wing when we are, and look at some of the reasoning behind that. Mm. I also slag off Ant Middleton. I also slag mm-hmm. off Johnny Mercer. Yes. So those are in there as well. Was that on the Plymouth Herald did, comments I, I, section? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that quote is in there. That quote is yes, uh, a number yes. of his best quotes are in there. I'm including the one where he's asked if he'd ever done cocaine, and he was like, "You don't put diesel in a Ferrari, lads." <laughs> I don't know if you heard that one. <laughs> But yeah, there's, there's a, there's a, you know, I look at the Captain Tom phenomenon, uh, which is very Mm. interesting and a bunch, a bunch of stuff. I'm just trying to kind of bring some kind of humanist and critical approach to uh, talk about veterans in a humanist and critical way, rather than just Mm. a load of big fucking assumptions, which people who are conservative and liberal and on the left all do. Mm. Um, You know, I'm trying to kind of get past some of those simple narratives. So it's out in November, um, yeah. Uh, it's a fucking buy it place
1: <laughs> no it sounds, it sounds like a much needed book because if there's something Nate and I have talked about a lot recently it's about how people just say insane generalistic shit about like oh everyone yeah. in the army is like this when it's just obviously such yeah. a massive organisation which people get caught yeah. up in for all sorts of reasons it.
2: I I can deal with it from the right, Milo, but a lot of people on the left do it. They're like, you're either a fascist or you're, or the other one is like, soldiers are basically cops. And I'm like, I don't think that like the relationship of soldiers to capitalism and the state is very different. Like, yeah, Britain's town centres aren't full of coppers going, I'm a homeless fucking copper, give me a quid. But they are full of soldiers. So clearly Mm. there's something fundamentally, it's, you know, so I can deal with it from, from, you know reactionaries but it really annoys me when it's the left to be honest it makes me
0: laugh too because i was like yeah soldiers are basically cops like well i think based on my soldiers uh General behavior. The Anchorage police would probably disagree that soldiers and cops. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But
2: we have our own prison and our own judges and our own legal system. So we're not, mm. you know, we're obviously not angels, are we? And we're definitely not cops.
1: Yeah. When you're on yeah. trial in front of the stick man.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> How do you plead? Exactly. Bulletproof or not bulletproof? <laughs> well, Joe, thank you so much for making time for this. Thank you for, for yeah, being flexible on schedule. It's been great talking to you. And uh, we'll get this. We'll make sure that uh, everyone. Knows knows about where to buy your book when it's available. So thank you again.
2: Thank you, lads. It's great to hear great great to hear from you. Um gotcha.
0: great stuff.